Hello, my friend, and welcome to TFU News and Views. I am your host, Anthony Brucalli, owner-operator of Madman behind TFU.info, the website, the Toy Archive, Transformers University podcast, this podcast, and oh, so much more. And I want to welcome you to episode number 61 of TFU News and Views. Transformers comics are back. Back? I'm better than ever. Look at this new paint job. I've gone beyond being just plain old bumblebee. I'm a gold bug feels like an eternity since the historic run of IDW Publishing's Transformers comics had come to an end. But now, our favorite robots in disguise are back, and this time from Image Comics via Robert Kirkman's Skybound imprint. There's been quite the buildup to this book. Pre-sale numbers are through the roof. The teasers and the tie-ins via Skybound's Void Rivals series has helped fuel the buzz, and anticipation for a TF comic has never been this high, probably since... Dreamwave back in the early 2000s. And I think Dreamwave is a great place to start with this discussion, particularly before we get into spoilers for the book. The lead up to this book really felt a lot like the lead up to the Dreamwave launch uh, when they got the Transformers license. It heavily tapped into nostalgia, particularly because they're using the 1984 lineup. Uh, it featured multiple covers per book, which has become the norm for Transformers comics. And the interest by the outside world was high. The Dreamwave books also had phenomenal numbers in terms of pre-sale and sales. From a content standpoint, really didn't know what to expect back then. We were promised a more mature take on Transformers. And of course, everyone's definition of mature when it comes to art really does vary. Uh, the concept is highly subjective. What we got were comics thin on story, thin on character development, high on violence, and filled with colorful art. Whether you thought that art or was good or bad, well, that's also highly subjective. All of this kind of mirrors my feelings for this book, both before and after my first read, and doesn't mean I disliked it. I'm reserving judgment on that until we see how things pay off. That said, I do like the new take on the Transformers' start on Earth, and this book feels a lot like what many of us in the fandom in 2003 expected from Dreamwave, but didn't get. In this version, there's at least story. It's not thin on story. It's not thin on characters. That's really the, the high point away from the Dreamwave comparison. Of course, for some of us, this may also be a bit too late by about 20 years, as the IDW runs from John Barber and James Robert and Maker Scott and Nick Roche may have satisfied those needs uh, way more than a mature Transformers book might. Uh, Daniel Warren Johnson's art is good. It's really good. It moves the story, and uh, unlike what we may have gotten from the second iteration of IDW, uh, it works very well with his writing. He understands the medium much better than the previous set of writers we had, and probably more so than the previous set of artists we had, too. Uh, his... Art style is a bit stylized, though, which may not be my favorite or my cup of tea for this. Uh, he reminds me a lot of Sam Keith in some ways, and not to say his art style looks like Sam Keith. His art style being unique and different is what reminds me of Sam Keith. Uh, you remember Sam Keith as the creator of the Max uh, comics and then ultimately uh, animated series. Um, I never loved Sam Keith's artwork. I knew it was good, but for me, it never really resonated. So... Who is this book for then? Well, likely the folks that like comic books and have never taken a chance on Transformers books in either the late run of Marvel or the mid-IDW heyday. I'm a fan of Robert Kirkman, and I have a hunch this book, like the rest of the Energon universe, may not stay this way as time goes on. But I feel like right now they're really aiming for that tail end of the nostalgia market, that post-COVID tail end of the nostalgia market. So what happens in the book? Well, 
that's the spoilery part. So if you don't want to hear about the facts of the story, now's your chance to punch out. If you want spoilers, stick around after this for more. And if you haven't read the book, read it. Come back here. I have a special surprise planned for the end of the show that you will not want to miss. Hey, want to help out this podcast or the website tfu.info? There's a number of ways you can do it. Let me tell you how. You can help us directly by joining our Patreon and enrolling as a student at Transformers University. There, you'll get early access to the podcast as well as exclusive behind-the-scenes peaks and perks for as little as $1 a month. Sign up is quick and easy. Just swing on by to www.patreon.com slash tfuinfo. Another way you can help us is by using our Amazon link, www.tfu.info slash Amazon. Type that into your browser whenever you want to shop at Amazon and a portion of what you spend will be contributed back to us. It's that easy. Finally, you don't become the world's longest running transforming toy archive without some help from other fans. We're always on the hunt for photos of figures and accessories we're missing from our pages. If you'd like to contribute, go to tfu.info slash help for a list of what we need or send an email to info at tfu.info. tfu.info, the alpha trion and omega prime of transforming toys. Now, back to the show. This book starts with an interesting new take on the Witwicky clan. Sparkplug is kind of a drunk and he's in a bar and he's remembering somebody named Jimmy. There's allusions to memories of Vietnam and a shuttle explosion, perhaps the Challenger. Uh, I guess this all kind of makes me feel like it's a period piece. There's nothing in it to say that it takes place in current times just yet. And uh, Spike and a reimagined Carly are off to look at the stars one night. Uh, and they accidentally stumble into the Ark with the Autobots and Decepticons, who are presumably dormant for like millions of years, right? And just then, Jetfire arrives over from Void Rivals to reactivate Teletran 1 and begin repairs. Having been dormant on that asteroid back in Void Rivals for a few millennia, uh, he does not know of the war and begins with repairing Starscream. We immediately get to introduce to Starscream's darker side as he shoots a deactivated Bumblebee in the face. Now, this sort of violence that might be off-putting for some fans. As Jetfire and Starscream argue, Teletran 1 continues to rebuild uh, robots. Starscream and Jetfire have it out, and Starscream shoots him in the stomach. If you heard my recent episode of Transformers University about the Argentinian sticker book from 1988, you may have caught me hinting at this moment. Now, Optimus awakens and fights Starscream, because he was the one being rebuilt in the background, uh, before noticing Spike and Carly and needing to protect the humans. Uh, more Autobots and Decepticons are rebuilt, Ratchet, Skywarp, Soundwave, and as Ratchet loads up Optimus's trailer with fallen Autobots and their parts in what may be the first useful use of the trailer and combat deck in a long time, uh, Optimus mourns Bumblebee like Vito Corleone mourning Sonny. Look how they mask my boy. Just then, Starscream attacks. Spike and Carly slide Optimus his gun, and he fights off the Decepticons some more. Knowing more Decepticons are being built, namely Thundercracker and Reflector, he does the only thing he can do. Shoot the hostage. He blows up Teletran 1. With Spike, Carly, and Ratchet, they make a run for it. Jetfire follows to fight off Starscream and Skywarp in the air. The Decepticons pull away from the pursuit due to lack of energon, and the Autobots take refuge in a rock quarry. There, Jetfire dies. Just like in the cartoon. He shows up, he dies. We shall remember you, Skyfire. We shall remember. Back at the Ark, Decepticons shoot Starscream to find more energon. We cut away to Sparkplug wrapping up his shift at the power plant. Starscream attacks said power plant, and his friend and driver, Davey, decides to make a run for the pickup truck, but is picked up by Starscream instead, and squish. To be continued. 
Overall, I like the twist on the more than meets the eye tale here. I mentioned that earlier in the non-spoilery part. It's more logical than a confused sky spy, you know, just waking up the Autobots. It also justifies limiting the cast in the early part of the run by not having everyone woken up at the same time. Unlike Dreamwave, this story is very competent, and unlike IDW 2.0, the story knows how to use dialogue and sound effects via the lettering uh, to push things along. That These are two huge comic book things to me that were missing in the last, most recent iteration of the IDW comics. The violence for me is a bit over the top. Um, it's not really necessarily I want from a Transformers book. Now, I expect it from Kirkman. I expect it from The Walking Dead. I expect it from Invincible. Uh, but it's not something that I would want to see in ample amounts in a Transformers book. I feel like it cheapens the deaths of characters later on when things get too violent too quickly. But I am interested in seeing where this is headed. I like that Megatron isn't a villain to start. It makes his arrival bigger and more dangerous and more looming. I like it. It makes him the bad guy he should be. Um, I wish I had a bigger take on the book, this particular issue as a whole, but my overall feeling is to wait and see. And so there you have it. That's my review of Skybound Transformers number one, Image Comics Transformers number one, whatever you want to call it. Now, if you've waited around this long, I did promise you a surprise. And it wasn't the surprise I had intended to promise you. I thought I had recorded a review of Dreamwave number one for Radio Free Cybertron way back in the day. I might have, and it might not have been published, which means lost the time on probably a CDR somewhere uh, in my home office. But what I did do, what I did remember I had done, was I had posted a written review to alt.toys.transformers, the Transformers Usenet news group, uh, the main place to really talk Transformers back in the early 2000s on April 5th, 2002. So what I'm going to present to you here is me reading my post to ATT uh, of Dreamwave number one, a blast from the past, and see how similar it is to what you just heard about Skybound's version of Transformers number one. All right, so the entry is titled Comic, and we used to do that uh, in in brackets, uh, like a lot of offices do now with external emails, right? Uh, so it was Comic, it was tagged as Comic, uh, DW's, Dreamwave, DW's G1 number one, cover to cover review. By Anthony Tony Fitz Brew Cali, April 5th, 2002, 8.41 p.m. with 55 seconds. So here we go. Or more like, so coming off the cover-to-cover review part of the title, here we go. Or more like, cover-to-cover to to double-priced cover-to-cover, I'll probably never care to own review. There's no plot summary here. That was done finally by Suspicy in his review. Uh, if you need the plot info, it's just going back and reading that post. Now, on with the view, but first, comic book spoilers ahead. The covers. Okay, first things first, the covers. The offer these have been floating around for some time now. I hate to say that I hate to start this review on a bad note, but I guess I will. I really, honestly, and truly hate Dreamway for using the poor market-crashing marketing techniques that ruined comics for many people of my generation. And with that said, it gets worse. Variant covers are one thing, but the cost of a comic book nowadays is another. But to charge nearly $6 for the holofoil cover and not give it all the posters the other book has is ludicrous. In essence, it really shows that Dreamwave is more interested than what is in your wallet here and now than making you come in long term for what they put on the page. 
The very least they could have done for the price of the Holofoil book was put both posters inside the book, much like X-Men number one had all the pinups and the backs of the variant covers in the deluxe edition. The art. The covers are fairly impressive. Pat Lee's Autobot shot is well done, though speckled with odd character choices such as Sideswipe, who is never prominent in any canon, taking up most of the back cover. However, the enormity of Omega Supreme is a nice touch. Generally and overall, I like Lee's art, mainly his choice of characters and choice of designs. Toy Accurate is always a plus with me. Where I really dislike his work is when it comes to Megatron. Lee's Megatron, though well-structured via the physique, fails to portray the devious evil mind of the character. Mainly, I fault this to Lee's drawing of Megatron's face. Often, it comes off very soft and round and does little to emote for the character. Additionally, Lee's drawings of humans is way off as well. Spike bears little resemblance to his former self, cartoon or comic, and overall looks like a lost McFarlane character. Conversely, the additional art by James Rays is superb. His portrayal of Megatron via posters and covers illustrates why I dislike Lee's Megatron. Rays' Megatron has a hard-edged face and sharp angles emoting the character. Rays makes Megatron come off as a hard, angry, violent type much more than Lee does. In addition to Rays' stellar art for the Holofoil book, we are treated to two more posters by Rays inset into the comic. The Autobot and Holofoil comics feature a slick poster of many G1 favorites mixed on the lower half in front of Metroplex in City Mode, who divides the frame for some sweet Armada art at the top of the page. Interesting choices in the poster are Rodimus Prime, Cup, Toy Ultra Magnus, The Protector Box, and Grapple. The Armada art features a mystery Autobot, Ultra Jetfire perhaps, in the upper right side of the picture. The Decept book features another great raised piece of a battleground similar to what we used to see on the back of G1 toy boxes. Though Megatron floods most of the picture, seen in the art of some more interesting appearances including Wheeljack, Outback, Skids, Spyglass, Spectro, Viewfinder, all four of the Deluxe Insecticons, Twin Twist, Whirl, and Roadbuster. The story, part one, the script. I hope Chris Saracini's strong point is crafting a story because the dialogue he, he has no handle on. Much like a B-movie, this comic tends to speak as if the audience is incredibly dumb. If Dreamwave is going to aim for a more mature audience with this book, they need to write more mature dialogue. I don't mean swears or anything of that sort. The dialogue in this book tends to tell and not show which is a fundamental miscue when it comes to visual storytelling. For example, the conversation that starts on the first page is entirely forced. People do not interact like that. Someone with a full pack of cigarettes who is out in the woods generally does not need a light. The conversation would flow a hundred times more smoothly if the soldier just lights up and then gets lambasted by a comrade. Another instance of the utterly poor scripting is seen when Spike and General Hallow chat at Spike's dinner table. The dialogue in panel 3 and the dialogue in the same panel say basically the same thing. Top secret government bodies do not introduce themselves as top secret government bodies unless they really don't want to remain secret. This whole scene plays out worse than any Steven Seagal flick. Top secret government bodies have janitors mopping around the building during business hours? Senile or not, it constitutes a breach of security. Bonus points for the mention of Buster Witwicky, though the story still seems firmly rooted in cartoon continuity. Story part two, the plot. Eh, for our first issue, I'm wholly unimpressed. Understandably, a story has to build. There's very little to back up the hype of this issue on what's within its pages. It's kind of sad that the 3H folks can bang out a much more wild ride once a year than Dreamwave has done in the first 22 pages. Granted, the Bakan guys have 40 pages uh, in their book, but only have one shot at getting it right. 
For something that has gotten all the press it has, you'd think there'd be some more action in the first few pages. The direction of selling Transformers as weapons to the highest bidder is somewhat boring to me, uh, since the main appeal of the story has always been the civil war between the factions. Let's face it, it's the basis of every single Transformers series. Bonus points for the gratuitous inclusion of Hound, though. Nice touch. Also, Kid Daniel was a fun thing to discover. Insert Nixter joke here. Um, wow. <laughs> Stepping out of the, the thing for a minute. Um, I can't explain that Nixter thing without things getting really gross. But just say, um, let's be glad he's not part of the fandom anymore. All right, back into it. Lastly, the end note of the book is again trite. The government just happens to have Prime? Go figure. They could recover Prime. Why not the other Autobots? It's plausible to say that most ended up in the same location. Hopefully Dreamwave will have a reasonable explanation for this next issue. The one interesting piece of foreshadowing I see so far is the inclusion of Sparkplug on the Arc 2, though the newspaper referring to him as Sparkplug in the article is another example of poor writing and bad research. I'm starting to think Sparkplug being Armada Prime's minicon is no coincidence. And hell, it's a comic book, and everyone who reads comic books knows one thing for sure. Dead never means dead. It means we'll bring him back to life later on. The ads. Well, it's an ad for Botcom 2002. Kick-ass ad with great Dan Kana art of Ty. Am I wrong, or did they add a guest in Stephen Kramer? Titan Books. Um, is it wise to advertise that Delbo did the art? Winky smiley face. Back cover. Something really irks me about this ad. The bringing the Transformers back to life slogan. The self-sanctimonious attitude of that statement is almost an insult to those of us who have followed Transformers through their ups and downs. Also, it seems to attribute Dreamwave with somehow resurrecting the Transformers name, which we all know has never really disappeared from the public eye since 1984. Yes, I get the pun of it, but nevertheless, to make such a poorly worded blanket statement further reflects the there weren't Transformers after 1986 mentality of Dreamwave. The Conclusion Somehow, Transformers G1 number one has left me feeling exactly the same about it as I did before it came out. Indifferent. Sure, I'm happy to see Transformers in comics again, since the comic is truly what perpetuated my enjoyment of the line. However, Dreamwave seems to be grossly mishandling it from their 1994-esque marketing techniques to their poor storytelling techniques. Perhaps time will prove me wrong from here. I truly hope so, but for now, if a comic is building itself as for mature audiences, and the script needs to be able to tell me the story without talking down to me. And there you have it, folks. That is my 2002 review of Transformers Dreamwave number one to complement my 2023 review of Skybound Transformers number one. Once again, I am your host, Anthony Brucali, owner, operator, madman behind TFU.info. Until next time, see ya. Want to be on the show? Leave us a voicemail at 702-763-4838. That's 702-POD-4TFU. Or send an email to info at tfu.info. Be sure to catch us on Twitter at TFU underscore info and on Facebook and Instagram under the username TFU info, all one word. Also, please subscribe to our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash TFU info, where we post all of our podcasts plus special video segments, reviews, and live coverage of Transformers-related events such as New York Toy Fair and New York Comic Con. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please visit us at www.tfu.info 
the world's longest-running transforming toy archive.